This episode of Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher is brought to you by my friends at Boxwood Estate Winery. What do you do when you get out of the business of owning a three-time Super Bowl-winning NFL franchise? Well, this guy wouldn't know, but I'll tell you what John Ken Cook and his wife Rita did after owning the Washington football team. They purchased historic Boxwood Farm in Middleburg, Virginia in 2001 to establish a vineyard and a winery. Their goal from the beginning had been to produce the highest possible quality wine and to emulate the Bordeaux style. But they still wanted to retain the distinct expression of Virginia's terroir. So, in 2002, Mr. Cook hired renowned viticulturalist Lucy Morton, who I'd love to get on the show, to design a 16-acre vineyard and acclaimed architect Hugh Newell Jacobson and Dr. Richard Vine, an enologist at Purdue University to design Boxwood Winery. Together, they established one of the finest wineries that uses only estate-grown grapes in the country. Now, Boxwood's sustainable vineyards occupy 26 and a half acres of the historic landmark farm and are planted with traditional Bordeaux varietals, predominantly Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, and Sauvignon Blanc. So go to their website, boxwoodwinery.com. And if you're close enough to visit, check their visiting hours In this time of COVID, it's always good to check with any tasting room before making the trip because things are changing all the time. It's a lovely place, though, and I recommend you go. But if you're not close enough to make the trip, simply order a case or some bottles over the Internet. Listen, I have to tell you, I'm a fan of their 2015 Reserve Red Bordeaux blend. It's delicious. And I don't know if there's any left. Last time I spoke to someone there, they said it was going kind of fast. But if it's still available when you go to the site, I'm telling you now to buy some. You'll thank me later, I'm sure. So that's boxwoodwinery.com. That's B-O-X-W-O-O-D-W-I-N-E-R-Y.com. Now, let's get back to the show. We've had to expand the number of farms that we work with a little bit, um, and we'll probably continue to have to do that. Not so much because you can't buy all the rye and corn you need locally, but because you want to work with specific varietals and with farms that are using organic practices. um, And there are only so many farms that do that. it's more expensive for the farm. It's more it's more work for them. It's more expensive for us as well buying those grains. But that's you know that was a priority for us. And you know any distillery could open and uh, buy the cheapest grain possible from the Midwest or Canada, mm-hmm. and then try and figure out how to differentiate yourself in some other way. But for us, working with local farms and and uh, having an honest representation of local flavor in that way was going to be and is a core part of our identity. This is Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, a podcast that shines a light on the best winemakers, craft brewers, and spirit distillers in the DMV. So grab a glass of your favorite adult beverage. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and let's get started. Thank you, Asia. Hello and welcome to Barrel Tasting. I'm Howard Fletcher. And I'm very excited because on today's show, we're going to be featuring a distillery that was founded smack dab in the place of my birth. And I'm talking about Northeast Washington, D.C. But before I get into the details, I want to ask you in advance again to please subscribe and rate the podcast if you've not done so already. We are growing by leaps and bounds and subscribing and rating the pod helps us get the word out about the craft beverage culture in the DMV. And that's what I want to do. So please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening and subscribe to the podcast and give us five stars. My guests today are visionaries, partners and influencers in DC's growing craft distilling industry. Sandy Wood and Alex Lawfer are co-founders of One Eight Distilling. 
Now, why 1-8, you ask? Where did that name come from? Well, 1-8 Distilling is named for Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution, which, among other things, provided for the establishment of a district to serve as the nation's capital. So the good news is it established Washington, D.C. Bad news is we're not a state. That's a topic for another podcast. And also this administration, but I digress. This connection to history and tradition informs Sandy's and Alex's founding values. As they put it, we use local ingredients to create the bold flavors of our region for the people who take no shortcuts. And as a native Washingtonian, I love that. So what follows is a conversation that I had with Alex Lawfer and Sandy Wood at their distillery in Ivy City. I also had an opportunity to discuss their spirits with their head blender, Stephen Corrigan. And we had such a good discussion that I had to make this one a two-parter. So that will be coming up next week, my conversation with Stephen. So with no further ado, here's the story of 1-8 Distilling. Let's all raise a glass. I'm here at 1-8 Distilling in Northeast Washington, at one time kind of my stomping ground, but we'll get into that. So that's a story for another podcast, trust me. And I'm here with the, uh, the co-owners, uh, Sandy Wood and Alex Lawfer. Yes. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I was, uh, you know, I had a brief conversation with uh, Alex beforehand, and uh, I was mentioning the fact that I looked on your website and I saw, you know, the little uh, background of you guys. And I noticed that both of you aren't natives from D.C. So first, let me, let me start with Sandy. First, if Sandy says you are from Australia? Yeah, I was born in Adelaide, Australia, and uh, lived there until I was eight, and then moved to New York City. Mostly grew up in New York. So what brought you to D.C.? Uh, I moved out to D.C. in 1998 for law school. Um, I wasn't really necessarily planning on staying, but um, the city grew on me, and um, it, you know, it ended up being home. Yeah, well... You can sell the product you make now to all of your colleagues. Because the best drinkers I know are attorneys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And Alex, what about you? Uh, I was born in Boston. And uh, Sandy and I actually met in uh, undergrad in, in college. And after college, I moved to San Francisco to work in the biotech industry. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd end up there working for a couple of years before I got a PhD uh, in biology. But after... Uh, about 12 years working in the industry, I ended up at Columbia University as my sort of test. Did I really want to go back to school or just stay in working in labs? And uh, after experiencing that large research university, uh, I uh, decided I did not want that PhD. <laughs> yeah, well, Columbia is a great school to, it to, was a good to, school. to figure that out. Yes. And, so. and it was a great time. But then I ended up moving to D.C. to work at a nonprofit research institute in Rockville. Mm. So how did you guys get together the second time to start 1-8? Yeah, um, I don't think we ever imagined that we would be working in the same industry or uh, at the same business, uh, given our different um, professional backgrounds. But uh, we both certainly always had a, had a passion for spirits mm-hmm. and uh, shared that and enjoyed that. Uh, over you know the course of so many years and everything, and um, it was back in about 2012. Uh, and I had just read a couple of articles here and there, and and then had an excited conversation with a friend, another friend, 
uh, about um, doing some home distilling and uh, you know that's not that's not technically allowed um, but it certainly got the wheels in motion and um, and it was only a matter of a few weeks before I started crafting a lengthy pitch to Alex uh, to kind of get his interest and to see if I could woo him into um, this new new interest and passion. So as it happened, I thought then, and I still think now, that Alex and I were kind of the perfect fit to, to, to do this. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's been, it's been quite a journey. <laughs> well, Alex, you fit the mold of most everyone, at least, that I've spoken to where I really dig the products that they're making. Um, most of them have a background in science or especially chemistry. The other half of those people that make really good things are, are ones who grew up kind of in whatever it is. Usually it's winemaking. But sure. Um, one thing that I noticed on your, your website, and this really keyed in to, it got my attention because the reason I started this podcast was to promote the craft beverage industry in the Mid-Atlantic because yeah. I'm a big homer. I like stuff from here. And I think as I started traveling around in Northern Virginia, mostly uh, to wineries, I noticed that, hey, you know, unlike the late 80s when I first tasted Virginia wine, which was pretty bad, it had become very good. And then I checked out all the craft beverage places. And now I'm really, my eyes are being opened to what's going on in the distilling world here. And I noticed on your website, it said, we're deeply committed to chasing the taste of the mid-Atlantic. And uh, I want to know, what is that? And since you guys aren't really originally from the Mid-Atlantic, what is it that you discovered here that, you know, caught your attention? Uh, Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, it was very conscious of us to have the distillery here in D.C. Uh, we, We loved having the urban distillery, but that does mean we are a little bit separate from the source of our raw materials, our grains. Uh, those are going to be in farms a little further afield, so Maryland and Virginia. But the the history of distil- distilling in this area goes back, you know, uh, 400 years almost, as soon as the, the earliest colonists were coming over. And they brought their traditions from Europe. But the grains that they used, the ones that thrived in this region, were the ones that ended up being in their spirits. And I love continuing that tradition, uh, obviously with some more modern techniques, but allowing the flavors of uh, the farms from the farms in, um, you know, Land's End is in uh, Chestertown, Maryland, out on the Eastern Shore, and really has that maritime influence, as well as uh, today we're receiving, uh, I think it's 14 tons of rye and corn from Culpeper, uh, Virginia, so from the foothills of the Shenandoah, and just bringing these, these flavors together and allowing them to shine through in the bottle. When I lived in, in California, I was working in biotech and I liked that experience and it definitely gave me some skills that transfer to what I do now as a distiller. But really what I developed was my, my palate and my taste for, you know, it was a lot of wine back then. It was, I was going up to Napa and Sonoma and Mendocino and down to Santa Cruz and just experiencing all the different wines from that whole area. But also the, the idea of cooking simply and allowing the, sh- the ingredient to shine through. Uh, I love that California cuisine idea. Just start with a great, fresh, local ingredient and let it shine through to the plate. Same idea that we bring to distilling here at 1-8. Uh, work with these, these great farmers and, and 
do their grains, their, their produce justice by let, letting them uh, shine through in the bottle. I did want to talk to you guys about sourcing because I, I love the fact that you not only are a local business, but you buy local and you source locally. Mm-hmm. In the wine business here, which is, you know, all of them are agricultural business when you get down to it. Uh, grapes are a little bit more fragile, I think. And, you know, one bad summer, too much rain, a deep freeze can really mess up their production. Sure. Destroy it, actually. You've been open for six years. Is that correct? Yeah. 20 mm-hmm. 15, I think, is when you were founded. Yeah. Um, during that time, have you found it? How is sourcing locally for a distillery? Has it become challenge? I mean, since you've had some years behind, is it a challenge, or is it? Is there a lot of availability? Or tell me about that. There are some challenges there, um, and we've had to expand the number of farms that we work with a little bit, um, and we'll probably continue to have to do that. Um, not so much because you can't buy all the rye and corn you need locally, but because you want to work with specific varietals and with farms that are using organic practices. Um, and there are only so many farms that do that. Um, it's more expensive for the farm. It's more, uh, it's more work for them. It's more expensive for us as well, buying those grains. But that's, you know, that was a priority for us. So, um, and you know, any distillery could open and uh, buy the cheapest grain possible from the Midwest or Canada, mm-hmm. um, and and then try and figure out how to differentiate yourself in some other way. But for us, yeah, the uh, working with local farms and and uh, having an honest representation of local flavor in that way was going to be and is a core part of our identity. So we were. We knew there, there were going to be some headaches involved in that process, and, and there have been a few, but it's been, um, it's been very gratifying to have direct relationships with our local farmers. So then you guys decided to, okay, you have the conversation or probably a series of conversations, and you say, okay, we're going to go into business, we're going to do this. <laughs> what, did you, what, what was the first spirit that you distilled? Tell me that process of going from the first thing you distilled to developing the line that you offer now. Well, yeah, our <laughs> earliest distillations were, were whiskey uh, that went into the barrel and, um, you know, and are still aging in the barrel, uh, our first couple fills. We, we knew we wanted to make a range of spirits from grain. We wanted to focus on working with grain, although we have done some apple brandy and we'll continue to do other uh, fruit here and there. But, uh, but we knew we wanted to make a range. It was important for us to do... Uh, the clear spirits as well as the whiskey. Uh, so our first distillations were again for the barrel, um, bourbon and rye. And then immediately following, we did our first distillations for the first two releases we had when we opened the doors, uh, which are vodka, uh, district-made vodka. And at the time, uh, we released a white whiskey, which was an unaged rye. Uh, we called that Brock Creek white whiskey. Mm-hmm. And that was a fun one for us as well. Uh, but uh, since we released the, the aged whiskeys, we, uh, th- there wasn't ever really the huge demand for the unaged. So, <laughs> so yeah, those were our first spirits. Uh, lovely challenges those first uh, couple of months, really figuring it out on our system. Um, we had had some great experience working with other, di- learning from other distillers. Uh, but uh, really, it, it's not until you start up your own uh, that you, you figure it all out. 
Yeah. yeah. When, uh, it seems there's a big spirit of collaboration here in the, I will say the DM, greater DMV, maybe even the Mid-Atlantic, between not only distillers, but uh, you know, winemakers, craft brewers. What's your experience been with collaborations here? Uh, it is a rich stomping ground uh, <laughs> for that, and that, that's been a lot of fun, um, in particular with barrels um, and the way barrels will circulate around from distilleries to breweries, uh, from wineries to distilleries, and, and many other iterations, um, cideries as well. And I, I think we probably um, had interactions with m- most local breweries and um cideries and other distilleries along those lines and a few wineries still kind of exploring that that possibility as well but other you know there are so many other venues for collaborating as well so uh, two of our untitled spirits mm-hmm. kind of explored other other ways to collaborate um, working with a local coffee roaster uh, we send them an empty freshly empty bourbon barrel and they put roasted coffee beans in it and age the roasted coffee beans to get a bourbon finished coffee we get the barrel back freshly emptied from the beans and put the same bourbon back in for a coffee finished bourbon mm-hmm. uh, that's our entitled number three whiskey number three uh, and then we did a similar collaboration with a local chocolate maker where they aged cacao nibs in a bourbon barrel. Um, and that's our entitled number 12, which is another, you know, just fun um, experiment that we do on small, a small scale that creates a kind of a unique, unique product on both sides of the collaboration. Yeah. And then there's, there's other collaborations that I, I love for the sustainability mm-hmm. uh, aspect. Um, in our, in particular, uh, when we make our gin, we're left with these botanicals that have given up a lot of their flavor to the gin, but they still have quite a bit of flavor and would be a waste product for us. But what we do instead is I fill up, literally fill up bags full and drive them around the corner to a local pickle maker. They also make kimchi and kombucha, number one sons. There are a lot, a lot of local markets and they make a, a gin influenced pickle. Uh, it's either a cucumber pickle in the half the year, or in this time of year, it's a daikon radish pickle. Gin ginger, they call it. Uh, delicious stuff. And uh, yeah, I love the collaborative energy. I think the DC craft movement, um, starting before we began, but not a lot, mm. uh, but really has just exploded. And I love being a part of it and, and collaborating with these makers. I mean, even uh, you know, getting our, our spirits in the hands of a chocolate maker or a baker or, you know, all the different ways that you can collaborate. It's just a lot of fun. A baker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Crunk Cakes is one yeah. brand. Um, they, she makes uh, lovely, lovely uh, cupcakes. Uh-huh. Very highly infused. Quite boozy, spirit. yeah. Um, but also uh, Whisked, I think, has mm. done some things with our spirits. Mm. And uh, you know, Dolcezza Gelato has used our spirits mm-hmm. and uh, some flavors and just just a lot of fun to work with these other great makers. Well, this was a great segue to get to what I wanted to, really wanted to talk about, and that's your gin. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm, a, a, I'm not a big spirit drinker, but I do like gin. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I've really come to have an appreciation for the locally produced uh, craft gins because, um, you know, they're just, they're just so interesting, so mm-hmm. complex. But one gin that I haven't had, going back to the barrels, is your barrel-rested gin, which you've been kind enough to pour a little 
taste for me here to see. So what is it? Yeah. Tell me about the barrel uh, rested gin and what sets it apart from the Ivy City gin. Sure, sure. Um, well, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't start with a little bit about the Ivy City gin mm -hmm. itself. So a lot of gin is made by redistilling a neutral spirit um, with the botanicals. Most, even cra most craft distillers will buy a uh, NGS, neutral grain spirit, or grain neutral spirit sometimes called, uh, from a large factory distillery, and then they can redistill it with their botanicals. Um, we never wanted to do that. We wanted to make the base spirit ourselves. Mm -hmm. We make our own vodka from scratch. We're not redistilling NGS. We're, we're using the same grains we use to make our whiskey, uh, just distilling to a higher proof. Um, and a few other differences. So we, we made a rye base for our vodka. We loved rye and vodka uh, after tasting many vodkas. Love that character of the rye. And that was going to be the base for our gin. So when it came time to designing the gin, which took six, seven months even, mm -hmm. uh, going back and forth, different blends, um, we really wanted to accentuate spices in the botanical blend. Things like coriander, grains of paradise, fennel, and of course the junipers in there and some citrus and other things. But our signature became uh, Appalachian allspice. It's also known as American spice bush. It grows native all over the eastern U.S. Mostly we've been bringing it in from Ohio, but actually four years ago when we brought this up with the farm in the eastern shore in Chestertown, uh, the farmers out there, actually the farmer's wife, uh, decided she'd plant some. And this year we finally are getting our first uh, harvest of really local Appalachian allspice, American spice bush from, Wow. which we're really excited about. It's, it won't be enough for the entire year's production, but it's great. And she'll, she'll, she's planting more and we'll harvest more. She said the birds got, got at it a little bit this year before she could harvest the berries. So that's our signature. It's a, it lends a complex spice that just really blends well with the rye base. So that's how we make the Ivy City Gin. Uh, in the case of the barrel Ivy City Gin, some distilleries will just take that gin and put it in the barrel. Uh, but we knew that going in that uh, the oak from the new oak barrels as well as the ex-bourbon barrels that we were going to age the gin in was going to overpower some flavors. It was also going to add a lot that we wanted. Uh, so we needed to change the botanical blend for the barrel gin. So we did a couple things. One was bump up some of those botanicals, more fennel, more juniper. And then we added actually an 11th botanical. There's 10 botanicals in the Ivy City gin, 11 in, in the barrel rested. And that last one was orange peel. And we love adding the orange for additional citrus, but also uh, sweetness. And then, yeah, and so then it's aged for six months total. Some of it again in that new oak, and some in the ex bourbon, and uh, yeah, it's a fun spirit. We call it the you know it's a whiskey lover's gin, uh, really great on its own. But in so many cocktails, it's so uh, you know can take the place of a whiskey origin. And Howard, you're in good company because as, as it turns out, we didn't really maybe appreciate this before we opened, but DC is a big gin drinking town. <laughs> and, uh, so the gin has always been uh, our gin, and uh, not only our gin has been very popular in DC, and it's been it's been very gratifying to see that. Well, that's good. Um, before I take a sip of this, I've mentioned 
to uh, Alex before, and listeners to the show know that if you, I'm not the tasting notes guy. In fact, you know, you have to kind of explain it to me how it tastes, what it tastes like, and I say, oh yeah, now it is. But when you were mentioning that orange peel, see, if you blindfolded me and had me smell, you know, this uh, the aroma of this uh, barrel rested gin, I would probably guess whiskey. Mm-hmm. You know, just with my terrible nose. No, no, <laughs> I, I think would. the oak comes through. Yeah, I probably yeah. would. Now, in, in tasting it, you know, you taste the juniper mm-hmm. in it. But it is, I can see why you would call it a whiskey lover's gin. Because again, on a blindfold taste, I would probably say, I don't know what that is, but it's not gin. You know, <laughs> until, but it is, it's, it's got a lot of character to it. Really does. Yeah, there's plenty of juniper, um, but the wood sugars, those oak sugars, are uh, a bridge to the whiskey world. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people that aren't necessarily big gin fans end up really liking this gin, uh, and perhaps other barrel rested or barrel aged gins because of that um, that flavor profile and that aroma that they bring. Now, as a gin drinker, you know I drink gin and soda mm-hmm. and martinis in cocktails. This gin here, I don't know how it would pair. Is there a cocktail, or or is it better straight or neat, or what? Would you I mean, say? yeah, it's it's great on its own. Uh-huh. Uh, it actually takes to a whiskey cocktail as well as some gin cocktails. Now, this is not necessarily a gin and tonic gin. Yeah, um, it would be all right. It's certainly with the right tonic, it would be fine. Uh, but I prefer our regular Ivy City gin for a more classic gin and tonic. Mm-hmm. A martini. Uh, again, not as much with this gin, but a Martinez, which is the the origin of the martini, which calls for sweet vermouth mm-hmm. instead of a dry or a white vermouth, um, that works really well. I can see that, because that's yeah. almost like a Manhattan. Which is a Manhattan also. And yeah. certainly Negroni all day, every day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Negroni cocktail, because it loves, again, the sweet vermouth yeah. and a little bit stronger, assertive bitters, flavors. Mm-hmm. This holds this gin holds its own. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, across the street, we have an amazing Amaro and Aperitivo <laughs> uh, maker in Don Ciccio. And Francesco, talking about your love of, uh, you know, makers that are either from a science background or born into it. He's, yeah. I believe, fourth generation oh, wow. from Italy. Yeah. You'll have to go see him and do a yeah. co- podcast another time. I, I will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, yeah, we have, I don't know, about eight different choices across the street of what mm-hmm. to pair this. <laughs> and with a local uh, vermouth from Capital Line as well. So you can have an all DC mm-hmm. uh, you know, cocktail. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in looking at uh, doing my research, trying to find people to uh, interview for this podcast that look interesting enough to interview, uh, I know that this isn't unique to you, that there are some other barrel rested gins. It, mm-hmm. It's new to me uh, within the last year what do you find do you find that people once they purchase it or taste it maybe when you could have tastings uh do they keep coming back for more is this one of these things that's like wow this is what i've been looking for because i can see somebody having that type of experience yeah it's one of those (laughs) kind of spirits um and (laughs) you know there have been a few and we still have some people pestering us for our original recipe white white whiskey as well um where uh, it takes a little bit of ec- extra education mm-hmm. um, and you need to figure out your comfort zone with it at home. But once you do, um, you know, there, um, there isn't that much like it. Yeah. Um, what is 
like our uh, barrel arrested gin. I don't think there's anything like it. And so you get a, a loyal following. And certainly bartenders yeah. love to um, love to work with it as well because it has a unique voice for their cocktails. Is there a, uh, a restaurant or a bar here locally that has really like taken to your... Uh, any of your spirits, or but the barrel rested gin in particular. It's a good yeah. question. I'm, I'm lousy with accounts. I'm so right. busy here <laughs> right. that I don't get out enough. Right, I should have asked uh, you Morris Bar, definitely Morris is, lately is definitely the current. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, biggest fan of this of this particular spirit. Um, yeah, it, there have been a few over the years, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and this is one of those spirits that just really lends itself. Uh, very well to bars uh, where bartenders can come up with cocktails with it that uh, that allow a consumer to really learn about and explore that spirit. Yeah. yeah. I know you're not uh, soothsayers or anything like that, but we've gone almost a whole year with this unfortunate COVID situation. What do you think 21, or what do you hope, uh, I guess 21 holds for you as far as being able to I don't think business will ever go back to usual, at least in the short run, meaning the next three, two to three years. But um, are you hoping that, are you thinking that you're going to be able to open and do some tastings? Or you hope that's going to happen? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We we miss, really miss having people here. We've Mm -hmm. done some virtual experiences. We we continue. Our next one is, we we do the first Friday of the month um, right now. And um, those are great. Uh, and in fact, in some ways, it's been a blessing that we've started doing them because we should have been doing these all along. Oh. It's a great way for us to engage with a, our uh, customers that aren't necessarily going to make it here. Perhaps, you know, now that we're distributed in Illinois and Colorado, we can talk with folks out there. So that's been great. But we really, it, nothing beats having people in the space and taking on a tour and doing a tasting and, and trying cocktails. Uh, with the spirits. So we can't wait for, for doing that. And whether, uh, you know, for the short term, it's just when the weather gets better, we just do outdoor uh, in, in our lovely uh, nook of Ivy City here. Um, and then when we can, have people inside again. Um, yeah, so it's going to be better. It's definitely going to be better. Yeah. Um, we so miss the success our spirits have had locally in bars and restaurants as well as our own uh, cocktail bar, our own tasting room. But the other blessing is is the retail side has picked up, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which is great. You know, people are are bringing these bottles home with them and they are, you know, enjoying them at home, which is great. Yeah, well, let me speak to the space here, uh, which I haven't done. I meant to. I'm somebody who, like I said, I'm a native Washingtonian and... Uh, in my youth, I had some friends that were uh, adventurous, though they say that to say the <laughs> least. And so Ivy City was a place where they used to spend a little time. And um, the times there was not conducive to retail businesses or, <laughs> or enjoying themselves. And, and the neighborhood has transformed, and you've been a part of that. Yeah. And this space here, and what I really like about it is that you've kept the character of the building, but... Um, you know, really made it nice in here. This would be a great place to come. And I look forward to when you can open again yep. and uh, 
people can really come and experience this. You know, I, I love the fact that you named uh, your gin Ivy City Gin. You know, your your line is district made, so that's really close to my heart too. But you know, I, I like that you named it Ivy City Gin. That's really cool. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, we're proud of where we are, and yeah. we want to represent. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and it's exciting to be a part of a, a community of makers. Um, and, you know, Ivy City uh, has had a, a, a tough history. Uh, so, you know, to bring some street life to it uh, is, is great. And we're really optimistic and excited to see where... The neighborhood goes. It's there. There are a lot of challenges with gentrification um, that one needs to be careful about. But uh, but it, it is nice that people are getting to know this little corner of the city that they many people had never even heard of before. Yeah, yeah. and they're going to fix Dave Thomas Circle. Yes, that's <laughs> big news. Big news. <laughs> and so you're going to have to be able to get more people down here. So that's really cool. And you have Union Market up there as well. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys do anything at Union Market? By the way, we've been at some great events there. Yeah. Um, it's uh, I'm trying to think of the, the big one that was Emporium. Emporium yeah. was just amazing experience. But again, just being with a lot of other makers, um, uh, and uh, you, you can get a cocktail with our spirits at a couple of the spots there. Mm-hmm. And, um, It'll be nice when events are able to happen again, and yeah. uh, that neighborhood is also. The Union Market area has changed so, so much yeah. uh, that it's quite uh, a radical transformation over there. Yeah. Let's rewind. If you could send a text message to yourself back to like 2014, 2013, maybe when you first started thinking about doing this, what would you send to yourself? What, would you, what information would you give yourself that you know now, but you didn't know then, that you wish you knew then, if there's anything like that? I under appreciated how much demand there would be for bourbon and I would have mm. laid down more barrels of bourbon over the rye although we love both of our our whiskeys so much and and we'll we'll have more whiskeys coming out down the road we keep playing with single malt and with uh, wheat whiskey and other corn varietals bloody butcher anyways um, yeah the demand for the bourbon uh, has has uh, outstrip the rye and maybe I would have changed things a little bit there I don't know I don't raise know. more money <laughs> <laughs> we've been through um, you know a lot of growth um, and a lot of growth has entailed a lot of change mm-hmm. and um, a lot of new equipment and uh, it, it, it doesn't work that way for startups and for uh, distilleries and craft businesses where you get to uh, unless you're uh, a multi a multi-billionaire or whatever, yeah. where you get That's to start out. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sagamore. Um, but, uh, so we've had uh, fun, but also a lot of headaches and challenges yeah. trying to grow yeah. um, the way we want to grow. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say one thing. As much as I love the, the time machine game, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. and what I would do differently, you know, the things that you learn best often are from the mistakes Absolutely. and the tr- and the the trials and the the hard times um and you know uh you can't replace that yeah with with uh so 
something goes wrong on a still uh, and you, you learn how to fix it or you learn who to call to fix it, right. <laughs> you know, you just can't beat that. I think I'm going to speak to Stephen also, who's your yeah. head blender. But before we get to Stephen, uh, I want you guys just to let people know anything you'd like them to know about 1-8 distilling or the craft uh, beverage culture here. The mic is yours. Just, just please. I guess I would toot our own horn on a couple of things. Since we've been talking about uh, our barrel rested gin, received a platinum rating, probably I think the best or one of the best scores we've ever gotten, one of the best scores ever awarded uh, a gin. So we're tremendously proud of the spirit and hope we can continue to educate people about it and earn new customers and new fans for this spirit. It's just such a, a lovely thing. Um, and the other is that just to get behind that name, District Made Again, it is actually um, people sometimes I think take for granted that uh, because they're buying from a local company, they're buying a local product. And that's not always the case in distilling and other businesses as well. Um, for us, it is uh, really key to our identity um, that, uh, and everything that we, we do and we make here is that we make it from scratch and we make it from locally sourced products and um, and that's something that we're just really proud of so uh, i'd love to be able to shout that out anytime i can yeah i concur you know the district made line is uh is all it's well we we have the only uh whiskeys distilled in dc uh released here we're, we're not the only one that has done this district right. distilling when they were in the city had had some whiskey and and briefly green hat released uh some rye whiskey as well but i don't believe they will again so really we're the only distillery in dc that that is selling whiskey that we've made here from locally grown grain and expressing that terroir again coming back to the mid-atlantic it is the terroir is, is such a widely accepted concept in the wine world and it's becoming more so in spirits and uh you know, you, you can't make district-made vodka that's going to taste the same from rye grown, uh, you know, in North Dakota. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, all I can say is enjoy, try uh, the, only, the only bourbon and rye made in D.C. and, uh, and, our, and our other spirits as well. Uh, and when we can have you in here, uh, we'd love to see you. In the meantime, do a virtual tasting with either myself or Sandy or, or uh, Stephen. Yeah, well, I uh, put all your information in the show notes, um, and I would highly uh, recommend that you check them out because uh, they're all all DC, and it's very good. It's very. I mean, this barrel tasted. I'm kind of like speechless. You hear me over here like stuttering. This uh, this barrel rested gin is. Uh, it's pretty good. I'm, I'm, now I'm going to make a Manhattan. <laughs> I'm going to get a bottle. I'm going to make a Manhattan. As soon as you've planted that seed, I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be great. So anyway, uh, Alex and Sandy, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I'll be down here as soon as you can open your doors again. Cheers. Right. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Howard. Well, that's another show in the books. I had a fantastic time speaking with Sandy Wood and Alex Lawfer of 1-8 Distilling. If you live in the DMV or if you're planning to visit our nation's capital, please go to 1-8 Distilling's website to see when you can stop by their facility to grab a bottle or six or 10 of their district-made spirits. 
And you can use their store locator on the website as well to find a fine spirit dealer near you that carries their brand. And please tell whoever you get it from, tell them that you heard about it on Barrel Tasting. I'd like to thank the 1-8 team for taking time out of their busy schedule to be guests on my show. Alex and Sandy, you guys are always welcome to come on to discuss all things DC and all things craft spirit related. I say it all the time, I'm about promoting the craft beverage industry in the DMV because it's some of the best in the nation. And if you agree with that sentiment, please share the podcast. The more it grows, the more I can get the word out about the craft beverage culture here. This show was written, produced, birthed, kind of screwed up a little bit by yours truly, Howard Fletcher. Now remember to tune in next week to catch my conversation with 1-8 head brewer, Stephen Corrigan. I know there's a lot of media that you could be listening to besides me, and that's why I work so hard to bring you the content that I do. I truly appreciate your time investment in me. Thank you again for listening. Remember, always have a designated driver. So I'll see you next time. Isvikata. You have been listening to Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, part of the Fletcher Podcast Group. You can reach Howard at his website, barreltastingpod.com. I'm Asia Blue. Thanks for listening. See you next time.